Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. First, Tim Shorrock will update us in the two Koreas. And then at the bottom of the hour, the writer and activist Margaret Corvid will talk about British politics after last week's electoral surprise. First, the Koreas. In the southern part of the peninsula, a corrupt, reactionary, and deeply unpopular President Park Jun-hee was impeached in March and replaced by Moon Jae-in, who was elected in early May. And the North keeps testing missiles as the U.S. political and media establishment rattle their sabers. Here's Tim Schrock, a journalist who grew up in South Korea, who has been writing about the country for over three decades, to explain it all to us. Welcome, Tim. Let's, uh, let's talk about the two Koreas. Uh, starting in the South, you've just been there for a couple of months, uh, and there's been a presidential succession, uh, well, first an impeachment, uh, then a succession. What led to the impeachment? What led to it was a people's movement against, you know, probably the most unpopular South Korean president in, in decades, and deep, deep anger and unhappiness over a whole slew of policies that this government under Park Geun-hye were implementing, uh, very undemocratic practices, you know, police, excessive use of police force against demonstrations, political blacklists, you know, spying by the... Korean CIA, uh, the president taking money from big conglomerates, you know, corruption. Plus, there's a lot of problems with the economy, you know, with uh, South Korea, even though it looked at, you know, sort of globally, its its economy is doing well. Uh, A lot of it's dependent on what they call, you know, precarious jobs. There's a lot of structural unemployment, but these precarious jobs are like, it's kind of like Walmart writ large, you know, like less than full-time jobs, people that don't have benefits. And so altogether, these were all issues that were affecting many Koreans. And so starting in 2015, they began to hold these candlelight vigils and or demonstrations in downtown Seoul and other cities. And they called it the candlelight revolution. These went on for weeks and months. They finally convinced the National Assembly to impeach President Park Geun-hye, and she was successfully impeached. And then uh, on May 9th, there was a presidential election, a snap election, where this uh, fairly progressive politician, Moon Jae-in, won the presidency. And I was lucky enough, uh, privileged to be one of the only two foreign journalists uh, to interview him uh, during the election campaign. I interviewed him two days before his uh, victory. And, uh, you know, he attributed his victory to this people's movement, this candlelight movement. It really shows the power of organized citizens in South Korea. What was the class nature of this uh, this movement against her? Was it broad, uh, middle class, working class, everyone? It was led by working class. I mean, the you know, Korean unions are are very strong, uh, particularly this, this Korean federal Confederation of Trade Unions, which represents uh, big industrial companies like uh, you know, Hyundai. So it was a combination of, of labor groups, uh, farmer groups unhappy about free trade and the you know U.S.-Korea free trade agreement. Uh, you know, citizens groups just disturbed about the lack of democratization and and the repressive policies by this government. And uh, so it was, it was a kind of multi-class movement, but at the leadership were unions as well as uh, some some very strong citizens groups that focus on, you know, peace and justice. It's wide and deep, I would say, but there's a very strong working class element to this. And the new president, what's his background and what are his politics? Moon 
JN started out as a, you know, he has a long history in the movement for democracy. He was, a, you know, active in the student movement in the 70s. Uh, he became a human rights lawyer, and he represented workers uh, primarily in his early days. And so he took a lot of labor cases. And he was very involved in the movement against uh, Park Chung-hee and later Chun Doo-hwan, who were the two military dictators who ruled for many years. He was arrested a couple of times during that time. He worked for uh, Nomu Hyun, who was the last sort of progressive uh, president uh, who was preceded the last two presidents. And Nomu Hyun and his predecessor, Kim Dae-jung, who was a well-known opposition leader for many years, you know, had this policy toward North Korea of, you know, sunshine policy of of trying to decrease tensions by economic openings and, you know, cultural relations, sports teams, exchanges, and that kind of thing. Moon Jae-in ran on a campaign saying he wanted to have South Korea take the lead in negotiations with North Korea and to de- decrease tensions by bringing back the sunshine policies. And he comes out of that tradition. And the two times I actually saw him give speeches in where I was in down in Gwangju uh, for for the two months I was there, you know, he, he he spoke a lot about the sunshine policies and the need to negotiate with the North and lead those negotiations. And you know, polls showed that you know seventy percent of South Koreans you know favored that that kind of position as a, as as opposed to the very very hard line policies of Park Geun Hye and her predecessor who, along with the U.S., just took, you know, a very strong military military line against North Korea and, you know, very heavy sanctions and, and trying to force them uh, with, with sanctions and basically large, huge-scale military exercises to, to try to force them to, out of their nuclear program. So he's taking a very different approach on, on a number of issues. Actually, the first act he did as president was to go to Incheon Airport, where there are many of these precarious workers who work, you know, have part-time jobs, and he he made a you know pu- a public uh, statement there and took pictures with these workers there, saying, you know, the public sector uh, should take the lead in reducing those kinds of you know part-time jobs and get give people full-time jobs with benefits. And so that that actually, you know, was a real recognition of the role of, of trade unions in 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 the in the whole movement, and was very much uh, appreciated by by the industrial unions there. Korean unions have quite a history of militants, but what is exactly is their role in the economy and the politics of the country today? They've been leading the, the fights against the conglomerates that control the South Korean economy. Samsung, Lotte, Hyundai, etc. You know, are kind of household names in in the U.S. Uh, because of their products here. Uh, but they, the 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 kind of uh, power they have over the South Korean economy is enormous. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine, but a lot of these companies are like you know, it's like combinations of the our our largest corporations. You know, like if you put you know if you put uh, all the you know, several of our huge companies together, that's the kind of uh, monopolization they have. And so they have very deep influence on, the, have had deep influence on the politics of the country, and they've been trying to get the government to uh, change labor laws to make it harder to organize and and to make it easier to fire workers and so on. And so the labor unions, you know, have taken a very strong role in, in that in that arena. And like I said earlier, one of the big issues in the in the 
campaign and this candlelight revolution was the use of police force against these demonstrations. And the the leader of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, which is the second largest confederation, has been in jail for, he was sentenced to five years and was reduced to three, but, but he's still in jail. Uh, the Constitutional Court recently heard his case and kept him in jail. He organized a very large demonstration in 2015, uh, against those kind of labor policies of the Pakenhe government, and you know, one person was one of the demonstrators was was killed by the use of you know police water cannons and knocked him to the ground. And he got a brain injury, and so you know they've been they've been very strong. I mean, their percentage of the worker workforce is higher than in the U.S., but it's it's not enormous. I mean, there's been a lot of repression and a lot of attacks on organized labor over the last few years, but the uh, militant part of the Korean labor movement grew out of the 1980s when they finally got democratization. And then there was a sort of massive wave of organizing in the very big industries, uh, like happened in the United States with the CIO back in the 30s. Very, very similar kind of kind of organizing where there's this massive, you know, went into the steel mills and the auto factories and, and did that kind of, you know, brought all kinds of people into the labor movement. So that's, that's where their strength is. I'm speaking with the journalist Tim Shorak, who recently returned from a two-month visit to South Korea. All right, so now let's uh, cross the uh, 38th parallel, which I just learned uh, from that Bruce Cummings article he recommended, uh, was uh, chosen as the border between North and South when uh, when John McCloy and Dean Rusk went into a room uh, in the State Department and just said, here's what it's going to be, and then the U.S. sent troops and then created this divided peninsula, right? Yep, and that's where it remains. but it's very important to remember that, you know, like in, in, in contrast to the, the, the defeat of Japan, where the U.S. occupied Japan, but, but let Japan rule itself through its government. So the U.S. kind of ruled indirectly. In South Korea, southern Korea, they, the, the U.S. Army declared, you know, military government and ruled South Korea, southern Korea, through a direct military government headed by the U.S., and, you know, Korea was a victim of Japanese colonization, and Koreans fought against Je- the Japanese empire. And, you know, of course, in the, in the north, the, the Soviet Union occupied the northern part. Unfortunately, in the south, what happened was the U.S. Uh, uh, chose people to run the government. To, to run its government, who were collaborate, most very much, many of them were collaborators with Japanese colonialism, and this led to a lot of tensions in the late 1940s. In fact, there was you know guerrilla warfare, counterinsurgency campaigns against uh, you know left insurgencies in in the South in, in the late 40s, leading up to the 1950 invasion of the South by North Korea. The, the consequences of that, you know, artificial division, uh, you know, were enormous. The American attitude towards North Korea alternates between uh, pretty tasteless jokes about what a ridiculous regime it is and what ridiculous leaders the country has had, uh, and uh, a great paranoia that they're about to nuke L.A. Set us straight. What, what, what's going on uh, with these, the nuclear program, for example? North Korea has looked at Iraq. Uh, they've seen you know, Libya, and they, you know Libya, where where Gaddafi actually gave up his you know, nuclear weapons, right, and in exchange for agreement with NATO and the U.S. And then NATO and the U.S. helped overthrow him. And you look at you look at Libya today. Uh, they, you know, the U.S. invaded Iraq. They've feared uh, for since the end of the Korean War, which did not end in a peace treaty but in an armistice. They have feared 
for years that the U.S. would do what it did during the Korean War, which was completely just annihilate North Korea through bombing, firebombing. Most Americans don't realize what kind of devastation we visited upon North Korea. It's a, just a horrible, horrible war. And the U.S. ran out of targets. They bombed everything. I mean, they basically turned North Korea into cinders. And, of course, you know, a lot of people know about, you know, the U.S. bombing of Japan from the movie about McNamara and how even McNamara admitted the U.S. bombing of Japan might be seen as a war crime today because they just annihilated all these cities and killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of citizens, of civilians. And they, the same people, Curtis LeMay, who led the bombing of Japan, also, you know, led the bombing of North Korea, and the same thing happened. And so... You know, the North Koreans remember this. This wasn't, you know, it was only 60 years ago. And uh, the U.S. has had nuclear weapons pointed at North Korea ever, you know, ever since then. And, and of course, every year, uh, the United States and South Korea hold the world's largest military exercises two or three times a year. And in recent years, this year, for example, they brought in SEAL Team 6, which killed Osama bin Laden. And uh, they were practicing what they call the decapitation of the North Korean leadership, namely going in there and assassinating him. And so the North Koreans look at this and they're like, okay, uh, what we're going to do is, and they're very consistent in this, is we're going to build nuclear weapons and we're going to build missiles to put put them on. And we're going to, if we were attacked, we're going to, you know, go after U.S. bases in, in Japan and, you know, Okinawa and Guam if they can. So they've been moving ahead on this missile program. And uh, I think, in, in part, they're being hit by sanctions, U.N. sanctions and U.S. sanctions and other countries have joined. And they're very strong sanctions. Even China has, has uh, effectively uh, you know, helped with those sanctions by banning Korea, exports of Korean coal and that kind of thing. Uh, so they're, I think they're, right now they're continuing to test their missiles with hopes of you know getting into a strong position so there there could be negotiations and they could negotiate from sort of a, a position of strength but you know none of this is you know to ignore the, the the nature of the north korean government which is extremely you know repressive unbelievably repressive but it's a country that like any country has a right to exist and they want they want to protect their sovereignty and this is how they they see they can do it so you know, they're not going to attack the United States. I mean, there's just like, if you watch CNN and all these pundits that are on for months, you get the idea that, you know, they're ready to just, you know, like you said, you know, hit L.A. or Washington, D.C. Um, they're not going to attack the United States. They're protect- it's, it's, it's defense. Like most countries build new- their nuclear weapons for the same reason. Cummings quotes uh, Colin Powell saying if, uh, if the uh, North Koreans ever launched a nuclear attack, would turn the country into charcoal briquette. Right, exactly. Like it, like we did in the Korean War, and you know they know that. Uh, and but on the on the other side, if the U.S. attacked North Korea, like you know launched a preemptive strike, like you know Trump's people have been talking about on its 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 nuclear missile facilities, uh, North Korea has capability to do enormous damage to South Korea and to U.S. bases in South Korea. And so, you know, a war would just be a, a catastrophe for, for Korea. Seoul has, you know, huge, enormous city. Which is quite close to the border, right? Yeah, it's only, it's only about 30 kilometers south of the DMZ. Uh, so it's, it's very easy for South, North Korea to, you know, to devastate Seoul if they wanted to. 
And so, you know, any attack, uh, either way, it would be a terrible thing for for Korea. Uh, you know, Japan, you know, Japan could be hit. And of course, you know, we have the United States has 26,000 uh, soldiers in South Korea and, you know, min, you know, almost 70,000 in Japan. Uh, you know, but that's you know about a hundred thousand U.S. U.S. soldiers. So any war would be would be just you know devastation for the region, and I think that's an impediment, you know, against against war. And uh, when you know it's interesting to me when I was there, I arrived in South Korea in early April, just as you know these, this sort of phantom carrier group was heading to north to the Korean waters. It turned out to be not there, but you know Trump was making all these noises about getting ready to attack North Korea. Uh, if they fired an ICBM or tested a, another nuclear device. And there was just, uh, you know, watching CNN and reading the U.S. news uh, media, it was just unbelievable the kind of war scare that was going on. But in South Korea, people were not worried whatsoever. They were far more worried about what Trump might do than North Korea. And a lot of people in South Korea view this correctly, I think, as as a confrontation between the U.S. and North Korea, not so much between South Korea and North Korea. Uh, so I think, you know, the new president's approach, which is to try to use some, you know, e- economic incentives and, and other forms, non-military forms of talks or cultural exchanges and this, this kind of process to defuse the tensions is a much better way. Yeah, I'm wondering how the U.S. could move against North Korea if without the approval of, of South Korea. The South Korean population certainly can't be uh, very enthusiastic about the prospect of, of Donald Trump launching a cruise missile attack. But um, could the U.S. act on its own if it felt like it? Or would uh, South Korean objections uh, be enough to uh, bring sanity to Washington? Actually, I think it's already brought some sanity. The war headlines are, are, you know, we don't, we're no longer seeing war headlines, you know, and, you know, CNN's not running 24-7 stories on, you know, the possibility of war tomorrow in Korea. So I think Moon's approach has already kind of changed the dynamics a bit. And, you know, he's, you know, he's also, you know, sending out negotiators to talk to China, Russia, uh, Japan, European Union, uh, to sort of, sort of lay the foundation, I think, for, for some overall negotiations that could happen with the North. But I think the, the key here, and I was really amazed to see yesterday uh, this article in the New York Times by two analysts from the RAND Corporation, which is usually pretty militaristic and, and, and toward to the right, uh, call for you know negotiations for a peace treaty to end the Korean War, to formally end the Korean War. This is something I've been talking about for years on Democracy Now! and writing about. And so I'm, I'm happy to see people, you know, from uh, sort of the, the military side of the political fence in the U.S., you know, addressing this issue and saying, yeah, this may be one way to defuse the crisis, which is to have talks to actually formally end the Korean War. Which ended, in fact, 60-plus years ago, but has not ended formally uh, and legally. There was no peace treaty signed. It was ended in armistice. There was supposed to be a peace treaty signed, but it never happened. And instead, you know, you know, tensions have you know gone up and down over the years. But especially, you know, since I mean, uh, this is this is, seems like a long time ago. But you know, under the Bill Clinton administration, that was when the most progress was ever made in in in, in working toward a peace treaty with North Korea. 
Uh, you know, people may remember, remember in 1994 there was this agreement between the it was called the Agreed Framework between the U.S. and North Korea, which uh, was precipitated by a, a visit to Pyongyang by Jimmy Carter, who met with Kim Il Sung and defused a crisis over its nuclear program. And North Korea actually froze its nuclear arms program for eight years. And then the negotiations proceeded after that to the point that the, the, the highest-ranking general in the, in the North Korean army actually visited the White House in 2000 and met with Bill Clinton and his advisors at the time. And they were talking about having an agreement to uh, curtail its, its missile development. And they came very close. And then, you know, George Bush uh, completely, and when he came into office in 2001, completely rejected the idea of, of these kind of negotiations with North Korea. And actually at the time, Kim Dae-jung, who was the president of South Korea, was you know, very big on that, and was you know it was in in the process of his uh, carrying out his sunshine policies with you know economic exchanges and, and and this kind of thing. And Bush completely you know repudiated that and kind of humiliated Kim Dae Jung by saying you know we can't talk to the North, and and that pretty much ended ended that that period. Uh, and then the U.S. you know just discovered uh, what they said was an uranium program in North Korea, and since then, you know, the whole agreement unraveled. Um, but, you know, both sides played a role in, in unraveling that agreement. It's, uh, the U.S. always says, you know, North Korea never uh, meets its agreements, but in fact, they did freeze its nuclear program for eight years, and after after Clinton made this agreement, the Republicans took over the Congress in 1994, led by Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, and the first thing they did on foreign policy was attack the agreement with North Korea as a sellout, and uh, actually the U.S. reneged on part of its agreement. So, you know, I think negotiations, if, you know, serious negotiations could, could occur again under the right circumstances, and I think, uh, I'm hoping we're, we're moving toward that and moving away from this kind of confrontation, which would be devastating if it ever reached the state of war again. That was the journalist Tim Shurock. You can find his reporting on and from South Korea on the Nation Magazine's website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the sonata number 48 in G major by Domenico Scarlatti, number 471 in the Kirkpatrick catalog, which was compiled by the harpsichordist who played that selection, Ralph Kirkpatrick. It was recorded back in 1954. In April, British Prime Minister Theresa May called a surprise election three years before one would have been legally required. 
She hoped it would give her a mandate to negotiate Britain's exit from the EU. At the time, that looked like a reasonably safe bet. The Labour Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn, a serious and principled Social Democrat, was way behind the polls, and the party is almost universally predicted to be heading for disaster. The election results were far different from what was expected, with Labour getting 40% of the popular votes, just two points less than the Conservatives. While the Conservatives got many more parliamentary seats than Labour did out of this narrow popular vote victory, it was not enough to form a government, and the Tories turned to a weird reactionary party from Northern Ireland, the DUP, as possible coalition partners. As of showtime, however, this deal was not yet sealed. This highly inconclusive result will probably have to be clarified with another election this fall. Here's Margaret Corvin, a writer and Labour Party activist based in Plymouth, a city on the southwestern coast of England. She was on this show in early May to talk about what the election might bring. Here she is again to tell us what it all means. Margaret Corbett. Welcome back, uh, Margaret. Uh, it's been almost a week since the election now. How's it feel? We're all kind of spinning uh, around and scratching our heads uh, because while we've had uh, an amazing upset from the initial polls that were going on a month ago and six weeks ago, we still don't know what's going on with the Tories and the coalition that they're trying to join into with the DUP. Um, you know, so the Queen's speech has been delayed. Um, you know, the coalition talks are still in progress. The, the details are still being hammered out. Um, so we really don't know what's happening next day to day. Do the Tories know what's going on? Uh, the Tories don't know what's going on, um, and we're getting all kinds of random Tories briefing for and against uh, the Prime Minister. We've just had John Major uh, speaking to the BBC about how you know there are some very problematic issues with uh, going into coalition with the Democratic Unionist Party. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Theresa May uh, went before the 1922 committee in uh, Parliament, which is the big batch backbenchers committee of uh, the Conservative Party. And there were people coming out of that saying that, that was a good meeting. So there are indices going both ways there. John Major, that, that's a blast from the past. What is his status in Britain these days? He's not really at the center of political discourse. I don't think we've really heard much from John Major in a while. Um, you know, he's definitely a sort of semi-retired eminence, and it's not like we would be expecting him to get back into uh, the center of the fray. But obviously, you know, in Tory circles, his is no, his is a respected opinion. So. Uh, to have him just briefing against the coalition plans so openly and so publicly is somewhat of a surprise. And it's very interesting to hear. Um, the DUP obviously is a very right-wing reactionary conservative party. Um, they oppose LGBT rights. Uh, many of them adhere to a form of evangelical Protestantism that believes that the world was created 6,000 years ago. And while the DUP under the devolution agreement couldn't vote necessarily on English-only legislation, and you know the mainstream Tories have said that they wouldn't be changing any of the gay rights rules or the abortion rules or anything like that that people are concerned about, they could still really be a pull of the Overton window to the right. And their uh, involvement in a UK-wide coalition may indeed contravene the rules of the Good Friday Agreement, and it could actually destabilize things 
in uh, Northern Ireland. Like one of the things that, you know, this is all just speculation, but one of the things people in the DUP may have been asking for is to like reinstate these, uh, the rights of Protestant Orange Lodge uh, marches through Catholic areas, which was something that was stopped many decades ago uh, during the Troubles. So it could be a turn back in some ways to the bad old days in Northern Ireland. It's hard to see how May can stay in office after such a, well, she won, but it still looks like a defeat effectively. And having miscalculated so badly in calling the election, uh, you know, and her predecessor, of course, miscalculated badly in calling the Brexit referendum. Uh, how is this party even still in power? Um, I think that Brexit has a lot to do with why they're still in power. Um, you know, the Brexit uh, negotiations are supposed to be their timetable to be starting in a little bit over a week. And there are a lot of folks in the Tories and more broadly who would probably have uh, Theresa May's head on a platter if this was a normal political period. But because we are going into the Brexit period, um, I think some of them are clinging on to her as she calls for, ironically, quote unquote, a period of national stability. So I think some people are buying that argument and thinking, you know, we don't want to change horses in midstream when we're about to go into these Brexit negotiations in Brussels. Um, of course, there are also some Tories who just want to nakedly uh, cling on to power. And some of those think that Theresa May is the best person to do that. Some other people think that someone else like David Davis or Boris Johnson or even some other Tory figures might be a better leader. But that sort of leadership contest stuff would have to play out at the Tory party conference. So we're going to have these negotiations going on. There's going to be the summer recess in Parliament. Um, so they're, they're basically seeing Theresa May as the least bad option. And that's basically why she's still there after calling an election, arguably to consolidate her own power and to give her a stronger mandate to go into Brexit. And she basically shot herself in the in her foot so, you know in any kind of standard normal period she'd be out but in this period it's anything goes i saw a headline in the times your times not ours yet uh, on tuesday quoting may as saying austerity is over what if anything does she mean by that well basically what that is is in order to get through her uh, Queen's speech, you know, basically your political program, if you're a British party, um, has to go through the Queen's speech. And the Queen gets up there in her satin gown and her regalia and reads this speech that has been inscribed in ink on vellum and bound into this little book. And, and she needs to get that through. And she needs, because she's only got a very narrow majority. She needs to get that through parties like the DUP. And so things that she was talking about, like uh, ending the triple lock on pensions, ending the winter fuel allowance, and stuff like that basically has to go away in order for her to get that coalition. So she's claiming in the press that austerity is over because she's signaling to people in those parties, people who may have voted for Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party as well, 
that the kind of poison pills that were in her manifesto are going to go away. Um, I think that's really kind of cool. Uh, Nick Cernicek, uh, who is a left-wing commentator here in the UK, was talking about how Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party had, you know, directly attacked austerity on its agenda. And it's really great that you know, the neoliberal consensus is being questioned, not only by the Labour Party, but even within the conservatives. So, you know, the kind of presupposed acceptance of austerity is indeed over. And, you know, it's on the table. It's up for question. Well, there's an old tradition in the Tory party uh, that Thatcher pretty much purged that was, you know, not entirely hostile to the welfare state, not entirely, you know, radically pro-market, some kind of noblesse oblige conservatism. Is that still alive in any sense and can may draw upon that in reinventing the conservative party? May can definitely draw upon uh, the anti-neoliberal tradition. Um, the anti-neoliberal tradition, um, you know, has been carried forward not just by the left, but there have been right-wing populist uh, critiques of austerity and neoliberalism through UKIP. A lot of the UKIP vote uh, went towards the Tories. And there's also, yeah, there's a form of Tory that has kind of a Wilsonian uh, perspective. Um, I'm quoting somebody, and God help me, I can't remember who I'm quoting. I've been mainlining this stuff for the last couple of days. But, you know, they kind of want a safety blanket of a state. You know, they might have some, you know, right-wing free marketeer sort of views, but they want to have this kind of basic social safety net. Um, and that's back on the table. And, you know, the good news for the Labour Party is that we're the people who have a coherent critique of neoliberalism and of austerity. And if you have this electorate um, that is shifting, that's looking for a coherent critique, we're going to do a lot better job within labor of offering that up than the Tories are going to do. You said uh, something about uh, at least part of the Tory party rejecting um, the pure neoliberalism in favor of <laughs> the safety blanket. But the, the forces of Brexit were, many of the people behind Brexit, wanted a much more American-style political economy with you know, very brutalized, uh, deregulated labor market, minimal welfare state. Uh, and they saw Europe as an obstacle to that and Brexit as, as, as their path to uh, you know, libertarian freedom. Um, what, what's happening with those forces? If you look at the kind of, go back last year to the Brexit campaign, there were a lot of forces that wanted Brexit to wipe away um, the various regulatory powers of Europe, you know, from a very right-wing free market kind of perspective and to kind of put it more in the United States model. But there were also a lot of people who voted to leave that were, whether they were out-and-out out Lexiters, they wanted to leave Europe in order to bring uh, regulation and workers' rights and stuff like that even further within state control. So there were some people there on the left. There were some people within the kind of UKIP-style leave who wanted that. You know, the, there was the big red bus that I was talking about, you know, that said, which has been, you know, disproven, we spend £350 million a week on Europe. Let's use that to save our NHS. Uh, so those voters were definitely there. I would say some of the funding and organization of aspects of the Leave campaign were definitely put forward by the free marketeers you're talking about. Now, some of those free marketeers are still chilling out in the Tory party. Um, some of them have actually gone over to the Lib Dems and stuff like that. And some of them are just not voting at all. Um, but 
everything is up in the air right now, and I'm not really sure, none of us are really sure how this is going to shake out and where those forces are going to wind up. I would say uh, the national messaging that's coming out of the Tories right now doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for this kind of Hayekian, ultra-free market sort of uh, thing. Uh, You know, I don't see them having a really crucial role in the ongoing Brexit discourse from a popular electoral perspective. And also, I don't see them having a huge role in any elections that might happen in the autumn. But they're kind of sneaky and they hold their cards pretty close to their chest. So I don't know. I'm speaking with Margaret Corvid, an activist and writer based in Plymouth, England. And you said a few minutes ago that uh, the Labour Party is the party with uh, a critique of neoliberalism and an alternative agenda. But you know, 20 years ago, the Labour Party was Tony Blair's and he was, you know, Mr. Neoliberal. Uh, what's happened to that crowd? Well, that crowd is pretty much shifted off center stage within the Labour Party. Um, a lot of the people who are critical of new labor, or you might want to call it old new labor, now called all of these people Blairites. There was really a very tiny proportion of them that were literal followers of Tony Blair. Um, You know, that tendency was still present in some of the electoral calculus this time. Uh, But a lot of those people, people who want, you know, social liberalism and free market and a neoliberal agenda, some of them haven't voted, some of them have broken towards the liberal Democrats, um, you know, some of them have gone towards the uh, the Tories in Scotland. Um, people have broken from the SNP in Scotland over to the Tories. Um, but within Labour, there, there are some people who are critical of Corbynism, quite a lot of people, and they've been briefing against him in the press in the last few days since the election. But I don't think that their organizational control is a given. I don't think that their agenda is a given anymore. We've had, again, after the election, a huge increase of about 25,000 over the last few days after the election into uh, the Labour Party. And I would definitely say that most of those people are going to be anti-neoliberal. They're going to be pro-Corbyn. And um, you can see a lot of the people who've been critiquing Corbyn from the Labour Party have actually apologized. You know, Polly Toynbee, who is super not a Corbyn fan, was saying, you know, I was wrong and, and, you know, Corbynism, you know, seems to to have some legs on it. And there's been so many other people within labor and in the journalists around centrist labor that have cuddled up to or sidled up to Corbyn and Corbynism in the last few days. Uh, Whether they actually believe that in a consistent and thoroughgoing way remains to be seen, but they're definitely not center stage anymore. And we go back, what, a month, two months? It looked like it was going to be a blowout election. It looked like the Tories were going to crush labor. Uh, And then uh, that lead in the final days running up to the election collapsed. And obviously we had the outturn, as they say, uh, that we did. What happened? Did Corbyn win in some sense? Did May lose? Was it a combination of both? Some other um, factors at play? As I like to say, two things can be true at the same time. It's a little from column A, it's a little from column B. Uh, Theresa May ran a really pants, lousy campaign. 
Um, she was very wooden. People called her the Maybot. Uh, people kind of laughed when she said strong and stable every other word. She ran away from voters. She ran away from ordinary people um, in the places that she went. Um, you know, she came down to Cornwall, which is very interesting because that's traditionally a Lib Dem uh, Tory contest. And we had the seats taken Tory, but Labour came in second in most of those constituencies. But she came down to Cornwall and she met with people who supported her and basically shied away from public discourse. Um, she shied away from directly debating Jeremy Corbyn. So that was a really lousy campaign. And Jeremy Corbyn ran a really great campaign. People kind of forget that he is a natural campaigner, that speaking to huge audiences, that being on the campaign trail is his metier. And he's been doing it for over 30 years. And he did a really great job. Um, but that's not to say that we don't have room for improvement. Um, I I think that the kind of mainstream discourse in the press had very low uh, expectations for Jeremy Corbyn. So there wasn't as much scrutiny as there might have been. And there will be more scrutiny of Corbyn and his shadow cabinet and of the uh, labor campaign as a whole when most likely we run general election mark two in the autumn. So it was both things, but we have a long way to go. Uh, we called it a victory in many ways. People were celebrating, but we do not have control of, of parliament right now. And we need to take a lot more seats off of the Tories to to actually get that control. You know, a minority government with labor as its head would be great. But the best thing would be a labor majority government where we don't have to call on other parties. And to do that, we're going to need to win something like 63, 64 seats. Um, and, you know, that's that's a pretty tall order. But with the swing that you see nationally right now, I mean, there's been some polls coming out today and yesterday that if there was an election called right now, labor would win it by five points. If that trend continues and if the Tories continue to flounder around uh, ridiculously, you know, we have every chance of it. Now, what did the personality of Corbyn contribute to this? I mean, he's a charming fellow, but in a very understated way. Uh, he's not your traditional vain, strutting, bombastic politician. Did that contribute to his appeal? Yeah, the the appeal of Corbyn is very much the fact that he is not a standard politician. He has a gentleness to him. Um, he has done things. He doesn't do the kind of brutal, the thick of it style politics. He's invited his you know, opponents onto his shadow cabinets, into his rooms where he's taking counsel and advice. Um, he doesn't go around hammering people with negative campaigning. Um, and, you know, he's kind of got a gentleness to him, a sly humor to him. He does have a temper, but he keeps it under control. And, and I think that attracted people uh, who are definitely not interested in mainstream politics, you know, as it's been going on in the press. Young people, uh, it just hasn't been only young people who voted for him, but their turnout has increased in many constituencies, and they did go overwhelmingly for labor. Um, and that is because of his sort of anti-politician, his anti-politics and, and stuff like that. Um, but I also think that uh, his quiet uh, personality moved uh, the focus away from his, his personhood and towards the policies. And if you look like at this amazing manifesto that the Labour Party came up with, uh, this kind of core social democratic, fully costed manifesto 
Um, I think the fact that he doesn't have a bombastic personality allowed the electorate to really focus on the content of that manifesto and say, hey, they want to nationalize the railways, they want to renationalize various utilities and Royal Mail, they want a jobs first Brexit um, and to maintain issues of human rights and anti-racism and so on like that. And that attracted young people to him. It attracted people who are all the way up to middle age. Uh, really, a lot of them went for him and a lot of non-voters. Uh, so it is kind of part of the same anti-establishment discourse that, that brought Bernie Sanders onto the scene. Uh, and even in small part, the same anti-establishment that brought Leave and even Donald Trump. So I think that those uh, dynamics will continue through the summer and into the next election. And from the United States, where uh, a political platform adopted by a party is essentially a meaningless document that nobody ever remembers, uh, the, the manifestos of the parties in Britain seem to have some uh, um, appeal and seriousness to them. You mentioned some of the points in the Labour manifesto, but what, were, what, were they, what was the agenda uh, Labour was campaigning on? Uh, the agenda that Labour was campaigning on um, it was not fully automated luxury space communism, as some of the critics would uh, offer. What it was was a middle-of-the-line, social democratic, fully-costed manifesto that was offering things like, okay, yeah, we are going to stop the privatization of the NHS. We are going to save social care. We're going to build homes. Uh, we're going to increase jobs and all of this stuff. Uh, all this investment, almost a Keynesian level of investment, in, especially in things like infrastructure. And that was coming from, you know, progressive taxes on the wealthiest 1%, taxes on corporations. There was a tax uh, that was put in there that would, if somebody's paid some, I can't remember the exact figure, something like over 230,000 pounds a year, the corporation that hires that employee has to pay an additional tax on its own. Um, there was a proposal, you know, called the land tax that would get rid of the council tax that you pay right now, which is, um, you know, very much a, a largely a regressive tax. And that would, in, you know, increase the amount of revenue, but it would drastically decrease the amount of tax that lower middle class, working class people would be paying. Um, you know, it's basically tax the rich, tax the corporations, and use that to fund social development and, and social investment. And people loved it. People ate it up. Um, and then when you compared it to the Tory manifesto, that was, you know, I called it the Lord Voldemort manifesto. It was like, we're going to fund social care by making people do equity release out of their homes. Uh, we're going to do all of these cuts. We're going to, you know, repeal the ban on fox hunting so foxes can get ripped to shreds by hounds. It was basically the optics of it, as well as the content of the Tory manifesto, was this manifesto that looked really evil. And as, as Richard Seymour was writing, if you look at the kind of the meme-led culture of many of the young people, it was really easy in the very segmented kind of Facebook-based discourse to contrast the Tory manifesto and the Labour manifesto. And, and that's why uh, our messaging really took off. And, and we really 
managed to activate a lot of these younger voters, these voters connected on social media and stuff like that. Another axis of difference on the manifestos was about uh, Brexit. David Renton was writing something really interesting. You know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is, in his heart of hearts, a left lever, a lexiter. But the, a lot of the electorate was looking at hard Brexit versus soft Brexit. And they were ascribing to Corbyn's labor whether it's 100% true or not, the notion that the labor manifesto and the labor leadership would give us a soft Brexit, a gentle Brexit. And um, if you went with the Tories, it would risk a hard Brexit or even no deal. So, so I think that's uh, the, the reaction to that content in the manifesto really explains a lot of the realignment, uh, the electoral realignment that we've seen last week. And of course, the final uh, question is always, you know, the, the the big view of history. What what are we to make of this election? Was it just uh, an accident, uh, something, a moment that will be forgotten and will fade from view uh, in months? Or is this something of considerable historic significance? This is something of considerable historic significance for two reasons, because of the kind of broad rejection of status quo, austerity based politics, but also a rejection of the domination of like Rupert Murdoch's media and similar of the political discourse. Um, you had this huge disparity in the polls. You had the Servation polls on one end and the ICM polls on the other end, where the Servation polls were talking about a hung parliament or very close uh, campaign for labor, and the ICM polls were talking about the biggest uh, Tory upset, uh, and the Comrades polls were talking about the biggest Tory upset since Thatcher. The difference in those polls was their projected uh, analysis of youth turnout. So you're seeing a bunch of young people, whether it's within the Labor Party and Momentum, or whether it's people that were chanting Jeremy Corbyn at a Libertines concert, or pouring out of the pubs in Liverpool at Thursday night at three in the morning chanting Jeremy Corbyn. All of these people have been captivated and energized uh, in a way that had nothing to do with the headlines in the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. And if you talk about a small segment of, of these young people and the people in left-wing organizations like Momentum, they've just had a national mass campaign uh, to the left for social democracy. And, you know, by many calculations, by many estimates, they've won. So, so that is historic. And, you know, as a socialist, I am energized. I don't want to break. I don't want to wait. I say, bring it on. Bring it on, Tories. Let's have general election mark two. We're going to take even more seats off of you guys. And we're going to wind up with Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. That was Margaret Corvid, an activist and writer based in Plymouth, England. You can find her writing in The New Statesman, among other publications. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. Some of the Internationale performed in Le Jazz Hot Style by Stefan Grappelli. Till next week, bye.